0: Hello and welcome to our fourth Medicine 360 podcast. My name is Vinay Mandagheri. I'm a final year medical student at the University of Bristol and I'm one of the team of people interested in the medical humanities. I'm here with Professor Femi Oyabode, who is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Birmingham and an expert in descriptive and clinical psychopathology. He is an authority on cognitive neuropsychiatry of delusional misidentification syndromes, as well as other rare and unusual psychiatric syndromes. He is the author of Sim's Symptoms in the Mind, a textbook of descriptive psychopathology which has been translated into multiple languages. He is also a recognised expert in medical humanities, writing about the value of literature to medicine. Today we're going to be talking about the practical uses of the medical humanities Why we should be paying attention to our patients' language, and finally, the relationship between creativity and psychopathology. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Oyobode. Thank you. Joining our conversation is Dr. John Lee, who is a senior lecturer in English at the University of Bristol and program director. Of the Medical Humanities Intercalated BA degree. He is also Director of the Medicine 360 Project. Thank you very much for joining us John. Good to be here. I'd like to start uh, by posing the question what exactly is the value of humanities to medicine over sensitive medical training?
1: So um, I think the best way, the best way of approaching that question is to ask ourselves what are the current difficulties in medicine as a as a as a profession, and one of the difficulties in medicine as a profession is that it's uh, very technical in nature, and there's a, a, a an emphasis on the objectivity of uh, of the subject of the of the patient, for example, of the materials that we learn, of the signs and 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 uh, features of illnesses and so on, and what the humanities do, what the humanities have in common, and which is distinct from the sciences and the applied sciences, which is what medicine is, is that the humanities are interested in subjective experience. They're interested in the perspective of, of a person. And, and you could argue that that, that perspective has been de-emphasized in medicine. So so the medical humanities, you, you, the project of the medical humanities, you could argue, is an attempt to re-emphasize, uh, to refresh the perspective of the subject of individual so that we no longer just think of the patient as a, as a the part of their bodies. You no longer think of them as the, the, uh, as an example of a liver that's unwell or of a spleen or a, a lung that's diseased. We think of them as a person who happens to be afflicted by a disease and so I think that is the primary purpose of the humanities in medicine.
0: So it's a sense of Re reintroducing subjectivity to that relationship between a doctor and a patient. You describe quite a lot about about attentive, attentiveness to language being um, particularly important in psychiatry. Uh, in your in your own specialty, what exactly can we see that the that studying humanities um, adds to that particular skill of attentiveness to language?
1: Yes, yes, we can say that very very definitely so so uh, another way just to think of this if i you know if I just open up the discussion which we already having, which is to say that um if, when you're when you're interested in 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 literature, for example, and if you take a novel or a poem as examples you're you have to be attentive to the language that's being used, you can't ignore the language so you are aware of the words that are used, you're aware that there may be alternative words that could have been used, you're aware of the fact that there's been at least a conscious intention to use those words that the author has used to describe the setting that they're describing to you. Therefore, you recognize that there's a distinction between opinion, you recognize that you know when somebody is trying to uh, describe facts um, and the distinction, if you could argue, between the humanities and science and applied science, like medicine, is that in the sciences, people assume that language is neutral. They assume that the, that the content is what's important, that the, the, the description itself, the use of words themselves, that they are neutral, that they're not intended to persuade you, which, of course, is false, because every, every communication is persuasive in nature so 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 the point the of the medical humanities for a medical student or for a doctor is to remind us of the extraordinary importance of language to remind us that language is used for persuasion to rec, rec- help to recognize that in communicating with another person they're using language with us and and that's true for the patients too so the patients are using words and those words can be obviously very straightforwardly neutral, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're deceitful, and sometimes they're exaggerating, and sometimes they're trying to deny. So so attentiveness to language is uh, of great importance to all doctors because it's happening in the clinical encounter all the time. And what, the, what literature does, if we're using literature as an example of medical humanities, what it does is that it forces you to pay attention to the words that are being used, and in the same way that you would or ought to be paying attention to the words that are being used in the clinical encounter.
2: Can I contribute in there, or can I even make a contribution? I just wanted to sort of pick up on on what Femi was saying in, in terms of, I suppose, the history of the discipline of English, which starts out, before it becomes English literature, as essentially the subject of rhetoric, That is the subject of persuasion, which is, I think, absolutely that sort of sense of people are motivated speakers. And and that's often why you would wish to learn how to handle language. It goes all the way back to a kind of Greek origin in in law courts in particular and, and a notion perhaps of democracy there. But it's also quite interesting. I think that that's something that one has to teach to English students as well. Um, So I I teach a lot of Shakespeare. And one of the great things about Shakespeare is almost every speaker in a Shakespeare play is motivated. And actually, that's something that a lot of literature sort of isn't quite capable of giving that individuation. So it's not enough just to give a, a sort of quotation out of context. You have to always associate it with the person speaking what their perspectives and interests are. And and so it's a a sort of line I often find myself repeating. I was also wondering a little bit whether there was a particular part of speech that might be of interest, in in a sense, to uh, people working in psychiatry, um, by which I I kind of mean uh, that there's a book by Cox and Thielgood called Shakespeare the Prompter. Yes.
1: um,
2: And they're very much... They, they talk about literature being very helpful in enlarging the range of effective options yeah. uh, to a therapist. But they're particularly interested in metaphor. What exactly do you mean by that, sorry, John? So I think by, by again, it's, it's something that Femi was, was saying, by sort of listening attentively to people and reading attentively to literature, you have a kind of wider understanding of possible emotional responses or ways of responding mm-hmm. or in, in a sense ways in which people find one thing as a way of saying something else which I suppose is is an idea of a time metaphor mm-hmm. that you're you know grasping at one thing in terms of another yes um, that sort of sense of language to reach into an emotional realm yes. um, and I just wondered if, if that Cox and Thielgood sort of sense of the sort of the primacy of metaphor sometimes they talk about as sort of unpacking a conversation that perhaps is starting to run out between a therapist and uh, their patient and, and that metaphor can somehow expand that or change that or, or lead in new directions yeah. so it's just question you know, are, are there particular bits of speech or language that seem helpful?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean I take the point you're, you're making. So, so um, the, the the main text that most people in the Christian world, Christian Western world, would have been the Bible, rather than Shakespeare. So, so there's a lot of transaction going on using sacred text language, not the not the actual um, parables or anything. Of course, you can use the parables too if you want. And we're, we're, here. We're not talking about religious people, so I'm not, you know, I'm not a religious person, so to say. But nonetheless, the language is very important, and um, and then the 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 language that we've used, which is, uh, you know, so if you if you speak English, the the well-worn phrases that we use. So, for example, it's not rare at all in psychiatry that you would you would use the term a light at the end of the tunnel. So so that, there's so much that's packaged in there, and you use that very quickly to say something. Um, just like people sometimes drop into conversation, you know, the whole Hamlet idea of to be or not to be, you know, that sort of stuff. So you're using these, um, these phrases which have meaning, which in some respects can become banal, but in other respects, they can liven up and make things... Um, you know, make things work. Um, you know, all this shall pass away. That sort of way of speaking. So you've got somebody who's having a, a very stressful time, and you're using a form of words, a kind of a, a kind of uh, stereotypical kind of little, you know, what what uh, Carlos Williams would have said was a, a little word machine. <laughs> you know, you're using these phrases to unpick um, something. Um, so, so I, I agree with you that. Um, um, it works two ways, because you entered into this discussion with the idea that, we, that the language of Shakespeare, for example, might broaden, widen the degree, the kinds of responses that an individual might have. And, and I've responded with the idea that you've got these tiny little phrases, which are like condensations of, you know, of terms, and that these little phrases do the same work. They encapsulate a feeling and And between in the clinical encounter, that goes it's not just psychiatry. it goes across the whole of medicine um, and you do that work in 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 that way, and you can hear yourself. you know that these are well worn th- phrases, but you also hear the fact that they work in the here and now.
0: How exactly do you find uh, that, how exactly do you respond so you perhaps recognize these are well worn phrases. Um and you know you, you talk about the idea of kind of paying attention to these these phrases and they're they're condensed but they they have they they're imbued with a lot of meaning how do you respond as a doctor to that how do you use your your training in medical humanities um how do you put it to use does that make sense
1: yes it does make sense so so that's um we've got to be very careful for me not to put too much emphasis on experience, you know. I don't want to put too much emphasis on age. and I don't want to put too much emphasis on maturity. But what I'm trying to say there is that um, medicine is uh, it's a very humane subject. And um, the more human experience you have, the more you are able to be able to be with somebody else who is going through a difficult time. And people aren't going to come and see you as a doctor if they're not going through a difficult time. So, so we're seeing people in extremis. Therefore, we, we are being called upon to, to respond in a human way as well as in a professional way, if you want to make a distinction between a human way and a professional way. And the more you know, the more you read, the more you are open to the world, the more you are able to respond appropriately in a given situation. And there are no two identical situations, because if they were, or if you're responding to situations as if they were all identical, then it becomes, it starts to lack authenticity. It starts to be like a formula. and And the patients very quickly know that you're formulaic. So if you're trying to do this work, which we do for a living properly, you're open all the time. You yourself, you're developing all the time. And there used to be, a, you know, a period when, in, as a psychiatrist, you were being taught to um, to colonize, and I use that word deliberately, to colonize the patient's own language, so that you are listening to what the patient is saying, and you, like a chameleon, you then enter into their language space. And you're using the same kind of words that they're using. So, and that also is all part of the same thing. That you're you're just flexible. You're so flexible that you somehow innately and naturally you're able to respond. But that comes out of being open to the world, and 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 reading is one of them. But watching films is another. Watching comedy is another way of doing it. Watching soaps is another way of doing it. So that all the time you're just Life to how humans operate and how they behave.
0: Is there, does, does humanities teach you an attentiveness to um, silences as well? Do you see any value in that?
1: Oh, yes, of course. Um, I mean, silences are as important as, uh, as the things that occupy space, you know, occupy this, the, the, the empty spaces of, of language. So, yes, silences matter. And you get taught a lot of that in psychiatry. We should be taught more of that in medicine in general. Um, so, so of course you know that there are some silences which is uh, very, you know, easy silences, and you have got some which are very, very tense, um, and you got some which some people want to fill. And then you, as a as a as a psychiatrist or a doctor, you ask yourself why they're so quick to fill it, why they're so anxious to fill it. Do certainly, mean so silences. This speaks very, very loudly quite often. Um, yeah, so all of that is part of, they're all part of um, what we're discussing. And we're talking about these matters as if language is all down to words, because, of course, as you know, language, the, you've got the way in which two people are with one another. You've got the look in way, you've got the shift of the eyes, you've got the body posture, you've got the person moving closer, you've got them moving backwards. And in our subject... Uh, as in, as in literature, as in theatre, we're pre- preoccupied with what the person is wearing. Um, you, you know, just like the actors are preoccupied with what somebody is wearing, because those are part of, you know, the 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 stuff with which the person speaks. You know, so if the person comes in wearing a particular color or dark colors or things of that sort, they're speaking to you all the time. And you're noticing them, just like you notice it on the buses and on the street and in the shops, what people are wearing. So so it's much more, the communication is much more than just, uh, not just the words, but for, for today's purposes, we're concentrating on, on the verbal transactions.
2: I was interested, very in your book, Madness and Theatre. That's right. You talk also, or you raise the question of to what extent do people imitate the, the kind of disorders they see in literature as well so not not only a, as a sort of resource to understand some of these behaviors but also actually as, as a pattern for other people's disordered behaviors i i, I wonder if you could un- unpack that a
1: little yes yes i think the um, the the basic premise is very simple that as human beings uh, mime, mime only works because these are semiotics. So if somebody is miming, we can only understand mime if there are particular ways of carrying the body that speaks to the other person who is watching. And, and acting, theatre, only works. I mean, theatre can only work if the guy who is acting has somehow m- 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 mastered... What a gesture means. So, so if he shrugs his shoulder, we all know what it means to shrug the shoulder, and and if he ruffles his hair or if his sh- his hands are shaking, we all know precisely what he's saying. <laughs> you know. So, so the semiotics of bodily mo- movement is has to be has to be patterned and has to be recognisable enough for us to communicate to one another just by how we move and so on. So, so the really interesting question is, who is leading who? So, so when you've got uh, on the stage somebody who is acting as if they are insane, how have they decided how to do that? And, and if you've got somebody who is terribly unwell, very disturbed and distressed, they've got to be able to speak to us with their bodies to indicate their distress. So, so those those patterns of behaviours. So the question I've asked, which I don't think there's any proper answer to, is where do those patterns come from? So, so if the person, um, you you know, is uh, if if you imagine all the theatrical ways of doing, uh, you know, acting as if you are a Lear, in King Lear, if you've got all of that then you're, you're, you're asking yourself, how is it? Where does that come from? Does that come simply from observations of others? Or, or are you creating that anew? But of course we know that people went to visit, went to Bedlam to go and observe people who are unwell. And some of the behaviors are recognized patterns that may have come out of that. And some of the things in Shakespeare actually are from the text, from medical text, from psych- psychiatric texts. So so there's a feedback, you know, there's a feeding and feedback uh, between psychiatry um, patients and also between that and literature and theater and so on. So, so I, I don't think they're isolated. They're speaking to one another. And it may even be that being, there's a kind of uh, feedback loop which is uh, accentuated over time, which makes it more and more exaggerated and so on over time. I don't know. There's no empirical data on it. Um, but I won't be surprised that something of that sort is going on too
0: and that rounds off our episode with Femi Oyobode tune in for part 2 for this Medicine 360 podcast where we will be talking more about creativity and imagination if you'd like to know more about the medical humanities visit www.medicine360.co.uk